Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome back Robin Shaw of Lupus Films, director of The Tiger Who Came to Tea. And a hello to all of you out there from us at the Squiggly Animation Podcast. This is Ben Mitchell. Joined by Steve Henderson and Laura Beth Cowley. How's it going, gang? Ho, ho, hello, Ben. Things is good. Steve's hello was a bit more festive. See, I was going to go for a hello, ho, ho, but I think ho, ho, hello trips off the tongue a little better. And also, you're not calling somebody a ho. How are we all doing? Uh, I don't know who wants to answer first. This is the problem with podcasts <laughs> when we're recording from the other side of the, uh, other side of the country. Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm going to barrel in there and just ignore Laura Beth. I'm sorry, Laura Beth. Um, uh, I am doing fine. Thank you very much, Ben. How are you, Laura Beth? I'm well. A bit tired, but fine. <laughs> As is my natural state. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the end of your podcast, so you have to be here, I'm afraid. Uh, Duty okay. bound. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, contractually obliged. <laughs> What a holiday season we have ahead of us. My goodness. You walk in the streets and everyone is brimming with seasonal cheer, <laughs> oozing out of me myself, I have to say. I'm just... What's put everyone in such a good mood, Ben? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, hey, we, we put our heads down and focus on uh, the cartoons that are on the telly. I think that's my coping strategy. Yeah. Good stuff. That's good enough for me as well, I think. And other ephemeral distractions. So what kind of what kind of Christmas presents have we got for this podcast then, Ben? Well, we're going to be speaking with Robin Shaw of Lupus. Uh, Robin Shaw, we've spoken to a couple of times in the past. Uh, they have produced some amazing animated uh, specials, mainly holiday specials. They also, of course, recently did the feature film Ethel and Ernest. Carrying on that tradition, they've done an adaptation of The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Mm. One of those children's classics that I didn't hear about until I was an adult. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I'm assured it is indeed a classic. It is in every bookstore window at all times of year. We, they also did uh, We're Going on a Bear Hunt a few years ago. I've just come back from my post-math break. And uh, it was I, I went to a, a cabin in the woods, which isn't as scary as it sounds. Uh, it had a hot tub and uh, loads of... Uh, internet telly so that's all i needed really uh but it was it, <laughs> communing with nature communing with nature from the hot tub going is that what's that over there is that a fuck i don't wi-fi is not working <laughs> <laughs> you know what i didn't <laughs> and i said exactly that then um yeah we uh, uh the, there's a little walk which if you were foolish enough to leave the hot tub uh, and, and go on a little a walk around. Uh, uh, they were, it was themed to we're going on a bear hunt, uh, which was uh, which was lovely. So yeah, they uh, they are really hitting the culture out there as well with their Is that um, why you went there? Sorry, is that why you picked that particular cabin? No, no. Okay, no. I was going to say that's sad. No, I was like, yeah, okay, so it's got a hot tub, so it's got internet telly, so it's got all this amazing but space. does it have a child-themed Yeah, but hunt? is it themed like a, a, a piece of work made by lupus? I mean, come on. It's the difference between uh, me booking and me not booking, really. I mean, it's why I went to Disney World on my honeymoon uh, and not somewhere that wasn't animation-themed. How was Disney World? I don't know if we ever talked about that. Uh, was it magical? It was magical and excessive. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, nothing makes you uh, makes you actually realise that the world is 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 just 
it's not grinding to a halt, it's careering to a halt. <laughs> the amount of plastic uh, produced uh, by Disney World, you just look at it and it is just... The gas is on full there. It really is. <laughs> I went to Disney World when I was like 18, 17, and I'm pretty sure it's one of the circles of hell. Yeah, yes. It was the worst place I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> it was just queues. Queues for queuing, queue land. And, and heat. And like terrifying and... people that would just come out of bushes being like, do you need any help? It's like, <laughs> nah, I'm just trying to find the exit. Oh, no, they're, they're absolutely... It is. It does make you feel like the world is made for you. I mean, it's the happiest place on earth unless somebody's in front of you with a f***ing pram uh, <laughs> when, when, when you just want to punch somebody at the back of the head. Uh, but in terms of like the the staff there, it is it is made to feel bespoke. I mean, uh, even the people who are like you know sweeping up all the crap that people are dropping, horrible people. Keep your crap in your hands. There's bins, people. Uh, are just the happiest, smiliest people that you'll ever meet in your life. And, I mean, if that was in the UK, there wouldn't be a person sweeping up. But I think in lies the, the problem, because I am British, I don't like it. I find it really creepy. I'm like, do yeah. not talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely don't smile at me. And if I want something, I'll come to you, like every other human <laughs> being has ever done in civilization. Be rude to me and give me a story to tell when I get home. That's what I want from a holiday. <laughs> Well, I, I don't I, want happy people. But there's this guy, and he was obviously he was sweeping up, and, and we said, oh, do you, "Would you mind? I'm really sorry. Would you mind just taking a quick little picture?" And all of a sudden, he turns into this professional photographer, and he's like, "Right, sir, if you don't want to just stand there, and you, madam, if you want to just stand next to, and then if you can just turn like slightly." And I'm like, "Wow, you know." <laughs> it's because he has an art degree. Well, exactly. <laughs> they all have art degrees. Where you go? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. They're, they're all, you know, the sucked out from all the universities around around the world uh, uh, to to go and work at, at Disney Disney World. And then you say, "I worked in animation." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was really good. I, I went on a behind the scenes tour, which was like a kind of you know behind the magic thing. You know, when you go behind behind the scenes and you see. You know, that was our wedding gift to you. It was indeed, yes. Oh, um, yeah. come I picked circle. that one. I, 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 uh, I can, I can, I could hear Ben turning round to you there, Laura Beth, going, "Was it?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> that was me going. They're not going to have fun on my holiday. <laughs> they will learn. It's a little preview of the Christmas to come. Whenever someone's opening a gift, and I'm like, "What do we got?" <laughs> <laughs> That's this Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, it's the dads, isn't it? Like, uh, we're just as surprised <laughs> you, as the kids as to what the kids have got. Yeah. Oh, that's but, cool. But yeah, it was it was fantastic. The tour, you know, it's uh, it, exactly how you imagine uh, it being. You know, somebody just taking you around and you see like warehouses full of like Halloween decorations when it's years, you know, not years, you know, months away from Halloween, uh, and um, people kind of getting ready to stick on their goofy costumes you know you don't you don't quite see mickey mouse with with his head off looking depressed uh, donald duck having a smoke well, yeah. <laughs> unless you were on our honeymoon where we went to the magical kingdom of manhattan <laughs> and uh, i don't know if you've ever been to a wonderful little corner of that island called times square <laughs> oh my god that's horrible now the the tourist trap that is times square it's peppered with People in bootleg Disney costumes. <laughs> and it's like a really sinister, compact Disneyland. And SpongeBob and Spider-Man. And it's a f***ing shakedown. It's like mugging in daylight. And I, I had been warned that this would happen 
Uh, we didn't actually experience it first time, but literally as we were being driven in from the airport and we go past Times Square and we get to watch it happen. And what they do is tourists, rubes, if you will, are uh, toddling through Times Square and someone in a sort of Minnie Mouse-esque costume <laughs> waving at the kids and the kids are like, Mommy, Mommy, this is Minnie Mouse. It's like, oh, would you mind taking a picture? It's like, what happens is you get your picture taken with the Minnie Mouse, who moments ago was headless and a very angry, surly 45-year-old man. Um, with you a, you look know, like the guy from Joker when he's not in his clown makeup. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that kind of disposition as well. And so you get your picture taken, at which point every f- in a costume like miraculously appears and gets in the shot with you. And so after you've taken the picture, they come up and like, yo, $5. This goofy, who is now, you suddenly realize, a lot more, you know, physically a lot bigger than you. <laughs> and you just, you know, he just rendered the service of being in your photograph. So you got to pay up, son. Wow. Apparently these people get rested all the time. But it's such a, like a, uh, like a constant flow, I guess. Of, oh, Elmo's. That's the other one. Angry Elmo's. <laughs> if you want to be entertained slash never sleep again, look up, like, Elmo's fighting in Times Square. You're on my turf, motherfucker. <laughs> Elmo will end you. <laughs> Punching him in the face. One, two, three. <laughs> and now the listeners have heard three Elmo impressions. Happy times. This daylight robbery was sponsored by the letter Q. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the letter F and the letter U. <laughs> oh, fantastic! I, I really need to get myself over to <laughs> to Times Square. Um, you guys seem to have had way more fun than, uh, than 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 we had, and we went to bloody Disney World. But there, you, there you go. <laughs> I think I quite enjoy the fact that there are quite a lot of parallels between our ha- both of our honeymoons, but just like the complete opposite end of the fact that like the most exciting thing for our honeymoon was going to Coney Island, which I think for most people would be. A bit disappointing, but I was so excited. I imagine I had the same face that Jen had walking around Disneyland <laughs> in Coney Island. Where you remember we had a hot dog and we were witnessing an AA meeting, pretty much. <laughs> I was like, "This is great!" And I went and saw a genuine freak show. I was like, "This is great!" <laughs> it was the last freak show of the season. Yeah, I was so happy. It was like the best thing that's ever happened to me. We're just sort of sitting in this like genuine old timey like. Uh well, freak show. Yeah. I think it's so antiquated they haven't come up with a PC term for it. <laughs> Watching geeks and people, like, you know, dislocating themselves. The angriest little person in the world was the compare. I was like, this is just wrong and uncomfortable, but sort of strangely compelling and amazing at yeah, the same time. Yeah, and you just, time. like, turn to me and I'm, like, static. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best place on... This is the Magic Kingdom. This is the best place on Earth. This is the happiest place on Earth. <laughs> oh, Fantastic. You were saying you'd seen these new Disney remakes that I have thus far been able to stave off the temptation. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned you mentioned Joker, and the, you know, I saw Joker uh, there. Uh, we logged onto this this TV in uh, in, in in the the cabin, and uh, you log on, and, and it says you pay extra, and you get to watch basically their version of Netflix. And I, I logged on straight away, and. We rang up and said, "What what what films are on?" They went, "Oh, the latest films." And we were like, "Oh, well, okay, fair enough, that's good." 
uh, we logged on and it was like Maleficent and it was like well that's, that's yeah, from yeah. five years ago you <laughs> bastards uh, then we scrolled down and Joker was at the bottom and so we got to see Joker finally which was great I, you know don't don't know what you guys thought of it but uh, it was very good yeah I think we both enjoyed it it was a, it was a fantastic tribute act to uh, Taxi Driver so yeah which is good um, and it also had we managed to finally see Aladdin starring Will Smith and The Lion King starring starring Disappointment <laughs> starring <laughs> um, and uh, yeah I mean have you guys seen these no, that sounds like a really awful night. So, you know how I described the... Well, I, I described going to Disney World and seeing the real Mickey Mouse, and then you described going to Times Square and seeing uh, basically a scraggly $50 costume and somebody just basically mugging you off. That's that's what these live-action... Live-action, I'm, I'm using, you know, inverted commas here. These live-action versions are... They are just... They are awful. There is... Mm. This, I mean, especially the Lion King. I'm really sorry. I know a lot of people work really hard on this, but they were severely limited by the medium that they were using in terms of, in terms of it being an animated film. Because lions famously don't have famously lions, lions famously don't have eyebrows. <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah. Whereas cartoon lions do have eyebrows, and so that's an immediate thing you notice. Uh, I'm watching this Lion King, and they're doing shot for shot. Uh, of the beginning of the circle of life and it's like just a mediocre comparison to every single one of them uh there's a little bit there's a bit in the film where Mufasa looks down on on Zazu and gives him a little nod and in this one it's just like a sort of a lion just gawping at the (laughs) gawping at the screen and not even nodding and it's and it's just too subtle. It's like lunch. It, yeah, just just looking at it in a kind of way where you can interpret any sort of emotion from it. And it's weird because there are bits where there are bits in the film where Simba is supposedly happy and supposedly sad, and you can't tell the difference through <laughs> right. the through the uh, uh, the way that the characters are are animated. You can't tell the difference between the lions. There's there's a you know which has served nature documentaries for years <laughs> uh, in, in, uh, in, in terms of their edit, but for a feature film where you're supposed to tell, be able to tell the difference between uh, the lionesses, um, it's, it just doesn't, just doesn't work at all. Uh, and also, I think this should be down as a... This is, this is a crime in terms, of, in terms of filmmaking. If you're a British actor working on an American film and you are told to utter the line "Tally ho," that is one of the th- that really boils my piss. I <laughs> just the existence of that phrase. Just the fact that if like John John Oliver, a brummy, is being made to mm. act up as as this sort of London sort of Ron Atkinson light. You know, Ron Atkinson did a brilliant job in the first line, the first line, the original line, the one that matters. Sorry, um, and. John Oliver's doing this kind of impression of a sort of British, uh, and it's just so twee and second rate. Second rate, and obviously they got James Earl Jones back to do the voice of Mufasa because you know they can't they can't get anyone else to do that voice, and I'm really glad they got him back. But you're watching the film, and it's like listening to his B-roll from the original Lion King. Uh, 
because he's got older. He's aged, you know, by 25 years in that time. Remember who you are, you know, <laughs> sort of really old man now. And it's it's a shame. It's a shame to uh, to listen. And there's one line which I burst out laughing because obviously um, a lot of the things that they're doing with these new new remakes are quite rightly readdressing the balance uh, uh, of uh, you know male female and giving uh, female uh, the female character a more prominent role. And so uh, they've got Beyonce to be Nala in the film. And there's a bit where. <laughs> Beyonce, 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 who? I've never heard of her. Beyonce turns around and says, Lionesses, attack! And I burst out laughing because that just took me straight out of it. Because like, as if, you know, someone's going to turn around and go, Humans, attack! It just, it's just like... All the single lions. All the single lions, yeah. It just, it just, it just struck me as utterly ridiculous. And we also, we also watched um, the Aladdin film as well. The new Aladdin. Have you, you guys seen this? No. no. Oh, do I... I never will. Enough... Yeah, you're I... in the right place. You really are. I, I heard some of the... So- I think I, I mentioned this in an earlier episode. I heard some of the songs on Spotify, and it bummed me out too much. And it's... and it, But basically, you had the original Aladdin, where Robin Williams puts in all the legwork and does an incredible job. I mean, he's not in the film that much as the genie. Watch it again. He's not... He's not... When he's on screen, he takes up the screen but the film's not especially all about him. And, uh, you know, I know Robin Williams made a big point of that as well and, and was very explicit within the, the advertising and there's a whole heap of uh, history there as well. But when he was on screen, so like when they're, when they're singing um, Prince Ali, for example, and Robin Williams is bouncing off the walls and he's been all these different characters and he's, and he's you know, Eric Goldberg's amazing animation is morphing uh, the genie into all the, you know, m- keeping up with Robin Williams' I- I- amazing impersonations. And in this one, it's, it's, it's basically Will Smith going, woo! Yeah. It's, it's like, all right. That's what he brings to the table, his talented woos. And there's a, <laughs> I know you have to use a, a larger than life character and, and Will Smith is, is arguably that, that, that person, that actor. But he, oh man, there's no, there's no substitute. There really isn't. And the bit in, in Aladdin, uh, the romantic bit when they're on the magic carpet and flying around, and oh, it's lovely. The bit for girls. The, the bit for girls, Ben. Yeah, exactly. The bit that you like, Laura Beth. I really hate that song because when I was in school, every f- who thought they could carry a note had to sing that in assembly, <laughs> and so that song is just ruined for life. Because like, it was like every other assembly was just some half-toned teenager going, Why were they singing that in assembly? I don't know. Did everyone have to sing a song in assembly? That sounds like a horrible thing for a school to do. I went, I to, our, I went to a very good but very awful school at the same time. We sang all things bright and beautiful. I don't know. We weren't allowed to sing the most up-to-date stuff. Yeah, I didn't get to do show tunes. No, we did. Oh, Christ, would I have that up? (laughs) I had to sing Lion King as well at one point. Uh, Which bit? Circle of Life. Circle of Life. Just can't wait to be king's the best one. Or be prepared. Have all the kids marching. Well, we had to do, like, a performance because we got, like, the Olympics down my end of the country. And so we decided to do, like something to represent each of the rings and the Lion King was all we could think of for Africa. 
I mm. remember just being like at the time like oh boy <laughs> magical well it's really really sort of pushing on that that, that Disney magic there mm. brilliant um, I, just, I just reminded me the bit in the, Lion, in the new Lion King be prepared which is arguably the best you know, song yeah, absolutely. One of the best songs in in the film. No, the best song. Okay, the best song. In, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll have that. That's fine. Uh, the best song in in the film, and it's done in spoke is spoken word. Oh no! And there's <laughs> no there's no marching. There's no explosions. There's no volcano. You know, volcanic kind of uh, green smoke or any of that sort of stuff. There's no theatre to it. There's no hyenas playing rib cages with bones like xylophones. None of that stuff. For sake. I know. Does it at least rhyme? Well, yeah, it's the same song, but it's like it's like you know. Oh, so it is a song. It's not spoken dialogue. It's just reading out the. It's it's reading out the words. That's all it yeah. is. And I'm we thinking, is it because he can't sing? Well, I, I I can only presume. I mean, I, I'm watching it, thinking they're gearing up. The gear, this is what they're doing. <laughs> the gearing up is doing it a little bit, and then it's gonna it's gonna gradually. Oh, what might they, they might do it a cappella? They might, you know, they might really go for it. Uh, I imagine it's like Russell Crowe in Les Mis, <laughs> just like mumbling words, sort of to a song. I mean, I mean, fair fair play to Russell Crowe in Les Mis. He had a go. But I mean, like you know, this 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 guy didn't didn't even have a go. Uh, he's just like you know. So be prepared for a, a chance of a lifetime. That is annoying. Yeah, because <laughs> they Disney have gotten Danny DeVito singing, and they got Gilbert Gottfried, at least in the Aladdin show, singing. If they can get those two, this guy could f- make an effort. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so how, how is how is the parrot in uh, the Aladdin remake? <laughs> the parrot was um, was a parrot, and oh. uh, they've added a bit to the finale where the parrot becomes a giant parrot and chases uh, Aladdin through um, through Agrabah, oh. but becomes like a big evil parrot and you know flaps its wings and knocks over buildings and <laughs> and and all that. Because obviously the, the the logical solution when when you're a magician. And That's what was missing from the original. <laughs> yeah, giant <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> Just, yeah, can you imagine? That's what's missing from life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's that's what you got from the new. But like they, when they did a whole new world as well, as I was saying, um, because it's realistic now. You guys, it's got to be realistic. They basically just flew around the block. They didn't go to you know through Greece and China and all that sort of stuff. And they didn't you know. So what 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 these live action remakes do is is they they'll only push the fantasy so far. They won't be like, well, hang on, this mm. this magic carpet <laughs> can only can logically can only go around the block. It's like a car. <laughs> It's you know it's, it's like you couldn't take a corset to China in the in this in the state of a song. It's ridiculous. Um, and uh, a magic corset, you probably could. A magic corset. I think the the onus of the magic it's it, it's on the magic carpet to not just be able to fly. It should also do some magic shit too. Yeah, do some portal. Well, look, we're in Belgium now. It's because the carpet works for Uber now. It has a certain like number of taxi fares it has to reach and I target. See. It can only it doesn't go past you know. Block four, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then obviously the, there's the bit in obviously Aladdin where they banish Aladdin uh, to to the the far ends of the world. Just just 
just kill him. You know, I mean, if you feel like you're a, a morally scrupulous character with unlimited powers, just kill him. Don't, you know, but anyway, it <laughs> serves a story. Around. serves a story. So they, they banish him to the ends of the earth. And then the genie just goes and creates a little portal and pushes the magic carpet through to help Aladdin. And, Going, woo! Yeah, woo! Like, pushes, <laughs> pushes, uh, pushes um, the, the carpet through. So the carpet gets to save Aladdin. Uh, and then it's like three weeks later when, when Aladdin and the magic carpet are coming across <laughs> and, and you know, Jafar and and, uh, and Jasmine are getting married. Oh, the, and uh, Jasmine's got a mate now. So uh, the genie uh, gets married in the end of the film just to... Sorry, spoilers. Uh, Jasmine's got a mate now. Uh, so the genie can get married. There you go. Yeah. Lucky gal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you would say that Will Smith's performance didn't shake the room, it, it did, so to speak. It did, no, it, uh, it certainly didn't. I mean, nothing's going to top the definitive performance of the genie. I am, of course, talking about Dan Castellaneta, <laughs> who basically just did Homer. You know, my mum, I, I saw a Facebook memory post, and it was a picture of my mother at her village panto. And in, like, proper Tobias Funke fashion, she was wearing blue face for her village panto, where she was the genie. <laughs> and I guess because the genie was blue in the Disney movie, they just figure that's the standard genie skin color. Yeah. I think she probably did a better job <laughs> as the genie, based on what I've seen of the trailers. It was just, who can we just find who is an amiable, likable fellow? Yeah. Yeah, well. And did your mum go, woo, right the way through? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. He's f***ing ripping her off. <laughs> Will Smith stole my bit. <laughs> uh, right, so that's uh, that's what to avoid. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to revisit what seemed like very troubling memories. Because we, uh, one thing that was lacking on the Squiggly website were reviews. Mm. So thank you. We can now say we've reviewed them. Yeah, and, uh, well, they're not animated. They're live action. Of yeah, course, sorry. How could I forget? Lest I forget. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to stay well away from them, and rightly so, because they're awful. Thank you very much uh, for, for listening to my rant. Well, moving along, there isn't an enormous amount of ch- chat-worthy animation news other than um, that guy who traced all the animation for the PlayStation commercial. <laughs> that was quite funny. I forget his name. but um, Right, you should. <laughs> I think yeah, I think history should, but it was great because like it was like oh yeah, he just does this, but now finally he's done it on a big enough like project that people can call him out on it. Uh, but that was so like so the bulls on this guy when you put look at it side by side. What the hell? <laughs> but like, how do you start that? Do you get to a certain point and you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna do this for like the first few gigs. It'll get me a big gig. Then when I get to the big gig, I'll I'll it will be all me. And then he was thinking. I think genuinely, some people do not see why that's a problem. Mm. Like, I think some people really, really struggle. And normally, like they're in art school, and so they're sort of like weaned out quite early. But then, genuinely, don't see the difference between being inspired by and just ripping off and copying. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something you learn quite early on. Like everyone does a little bit of it, and it's like on on the like the line. Yeah. But if you're a good artist or if you're just a good person, you feel bad enough about it that you never do it again. Yeah. It's sort of the common sense of it. Yeah, just because you will like, get sued eventually. Like, I think there are like musicians, like they, you know, they, they hear a song 
and they're like, oh, I've got a good idea for a song. And then they get sort of, you know, called on. It's like, no, you can't just use the same melody. It's a similar kind of thing. I think probably he was tracing this stuff and in his head thinking to himself, I'm doing good animation. I'm doing good reference. (laughs) I've taken what these, you know, these established uh, approaches to dynamic animation and putting my own spin on it. By changing the colors. (laughs) But he really reached, like, he did a deep dive into, he must have just, like, YouTubed as much, like, dynamic animation as he could find and just, like, edited it together. Because when you look at, there's a big list of, like, stuff that he stole. Mm. It's quite tremendous. I'd love to see that Google search history, just like <laughs> dynamic movement, anime, dynamic movement. When does the local store close? Dynamic <laughs> movement, and just like just the keywords <laughs> just link them all together. And now it'd be like copyright lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so your life is over. <laughs> Job center plus. What careers can you get post animation? Well, it'd be the happy person sweeping the floor at Disney. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I still work in animation. <laughs> uh, thinking, oh, I, should, I should make a film about a mouse. I can call him Mickey. <laughs> They've never thought of that. <laughs> but yeah, rightly caught and and uh, lampooned to within an inch of his life, and uh, probably never going to get any work uh, in in. Well, you might think never get any work in industry again, but you know we shall see. This being um, an industry with such integrity... That if he's a fucking... white male, he'll probably be a director by the end of the year. Studios can launch and be like, Dude, we got the guy from Pixar! <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> what a coup! Motherfucker, no! I... <laughs> <laughs> have you ever sexually harassed someone? Here's a pay rise. Yeah, that, that, um, yeah, that is... <laughs> there was a lot of enthusiasm with that, wasn't there? There was like... Yeah, we got him. We, we. Mm. I mean, wow. I mean, what are the odds? What I mean, I mean, we must be amazing if he's left Pixar to come and work for us. He must be some things. I mean, we must be special. We must be. Have you have you Googled? Have you Googled what he's been up to? <laughs> no, but you know, we got this lovely email from him, and it really, you know, it was really <laughs> saying how he'd love to work on. I mean, wow. Give him a Google him. No, well, I will do, but we're busy with the welcome party. We, no, no, <laughs> Google him. <laughs> We're hitting all the hot, the hot topics out with this this podcast. It's, it's becoming a, a year a year news roundup. I think that's ultimately what we should go for. Yeah, address all the little bits we forgot, or just that we forgot we didn't forget. Yeah, right some wrongs, what? which is usually how it goes. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Moving on to artists with uh, integrity, m- more integrity. Well, we have shortlists for both the BAFTAs and the Oscars as regards the animation short film category. Not entirely the same. In fact, I think they're completely different. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone on those. Well, yeah, there's no there's no British films on the uh, Oscar shortlist this year. And rightly so. The way we've been acting. We, we oh, deserve yeah, a true. smack on the snout. <laughs> no, um, Britain. As far as the BAFTA shortlist, I think it's quite encouraging. And I think that generally, as far as both shortlists go, what I'm sort of seeing people comment on among these sort of circles of festival people is how it seems a little bit more in line with, you know, the films that have been doing well at festivals rather than, you know, a film you've never really heard of except it went online like a week before and everyone inexplicably liked it. You know, or films with, I guess, just a big marketing push. I mean, we talked a bit about the campaigning that goes into Oscar visibility in the last episode. 
I mean, it's sort of a mix, I suppose. There are a couple that I'm sure are there because of uh, tactful screening scheduling and stuff like that. But by and large, they all seem to be pretty decent films. Mm. Uh, for the BAFTAs, I would say, you know, six shortlisted. I guess it'll be down to three come the, the uh, new year. And there are certainly three that I'm, you know, quite enthusiastic about the idea of them going through. Yeah. And the other three I don't dislike. You know, I just feel there was something sort of special about. Uh, we're just sort of going through the list. We've got Four by Three by Ross Hogg, who we talked to during Encounters. And you can listen back to that, talking about that film. I think at the time it had just been nominated for a Scottish BAFTA. Mm-hmm. And that's a really satisfying, gratifying experimental film in the sort of vein of his other kind of scratch-on film uh, works. And it was done originally, if I'm remembering his insights into it correctly, it was done originally for an installation or a VR piece. Um, yeah. And, uh, a 360, at least, yeah. Yeah. It translated very well to a short film, which was how we watched it in Encounters, mm. at least as part of that particular screening. So it's nice to see that he's still busy. Yeah, it does it sort of echoes of uh, up. His uh, his earlier work, which uh, I'm a massive fan of, just the w- what I love about Ross's work is uh, this is this is work that's generally, and I don't want to insult anyone, it's generally it's not something usually picked up on by people in their twenties, really, is it? Mm. This kind of scratch on film, and he's really taking it to a sort of another uh, a, a, another level as he did with uh, Scribble Dub and as he has done with Four by Three and it's there's a real kind of artistry to it which is really worth celebrating. Yeah, I think anything that kind of deals with experimental shapes or abstract shapes set to soundtracks and stuff like that, you've got to make a bit of an effort to do something that stands out from the eight bajillion films mm. that have all been done in a kind of superficial imitation of, you know, old school Norman McLaren, you know, a bunch of people I studied with, like they just kind of fell into that because, Oh, well, this is the easy way to do it. And of course they made films that just weren't really that compelling or watchable or interesting. Mm. And so I think, yeah, people like Ross Hogg and, um, uh, Stephen Volishin's another one over in Canada, mm. um, who does a very quite different approach, but, makes very watchable films and does them in a kind of distinct way. Yeah, I think you need to kind of know when you're making experimental work what it is about non-experimental work that engages audiences structurally, um, what it is about the gratification of visuals and sound, how they kind of work together. You need to have a sort of filmmaking discipline in place. Um, for these to be watchable films. And I think that, you know, even if you then don't make a film that is at all narrative or adheres to cinematic structure, knowing what to do and what not to do, you know, it really is the difference between a good film and a really boring film. I, 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 the, the person who sort of encapsulates that for me is if anything by Peter Millard. If you've ever seen anything yeah, exactly, by yeah. Peter Millard in in a cinema, his film should not work. <laughs> this yeah. This guy is an absolute... Uh, his work looks like it's been done by a nutcase. He's a lovely man. Uh, he's, you know, um, and if you look at uh, Fruit Fruit uh, or Unhappy Happy or any of these films, it is as close as as close of a, as I've ever seen in animation terms to like I must have said this before to a stand up who's got complete control of the room. Yeah, and he can just command when I mean there's parts of his film where you get to the point where you want to turn around and look at the projectionist. And go, is this broken? And then it'll start up again and and, and just take yeah. the mic. I mean, yeah. Uh, and uh, 
yeah, but 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 what Ross does is Ross immerses you in in this kind of environment and this this kind of this this world. So yeah, very very uh, well earned place on the list there from uh, Mister Hog. Also, Creepy Pasta Salad by Lauren Orm, uh, who we just caught up with at uh, Cardiff Animation Nights, who just celebrated their fifth year. And uh, the Cardiff Animation Festival, of course, is coming together for its second edition in the spring. So very good news that all her irons and her various fires, because she runs a studio as well, that this film that she made is doing so well. It's a nice sort of, I think, confirmation that she knows the craft. Mm. And it's a very effective and appealing film. Uh, I've seen it probably the most out of any of the films that have come out this year. Yeah, there's something just very satisfying about it. And I hadn't realized that she kind of had... I mean, we've talked <clears throat> at length with her a couple of times between this podcast and uh, our Encounters coverage. So there's quite a lot of material about how the film came together. But the thing that sticks in my mind whenever I think about this film is how well-written it is. Mm. And of course, there's no reason to assume that you know your friend wouldn't be a good writer but there's also no reason to think they like you know what i mean like i knew she could animate and i knew she liked animation and then to see her films like oh this is actually really well written this is a really like tight effective story it comes together so well another one that was at encounters um the magic boat uh by namanazari who and that was that was okay it was a mainly rotoscoped film mm. um again we chatted with him a bit at encounters Another one I saw um, not that long ago was My Dad's Name Was Hugh. He was an alcoholic poet mm. by Freddie Griffiths. That was uh, also quite nice. In Her Boots, uh, I did see, but I can't remember it super well. And uh, Grandad Was a Romantic by Mariam Mohaja. That had a fantastic punchline. I'm not entirely sure whether I felt the film as a whole, like, was then, like, justified, if you know what I mean? Like, mm. I just felt the production values of it were a little hard right. to sit through. But the ending was great. Sort of, like, felt like a reward for your patience rather than something that really tied the whole film together. Right. Like, I was a bit surprised to see it on the shortlist. Yeah. Because it hasn't been setting the world aflame mm. as a film. Whereas at least three of the other films on this list, you know, people are talking about them quite a lot. Anyway, good luck to them all, uh, especially the ones who I've met in real life, because that's <laughs> just how it works. And <laughs> moving on to the Oscars. Uh, the Oscar shortlist, of course, it was a big, big list of eligible uh, films, 92, Same. I think. Yeah. And so now it's 10 that uh, are in contention for the nomination. Films that we have talked about before, worth mentioning, Uncle Thomas Accounting for the Days. We, of course, had Regina talking about that film a few episodes ago. And Flora Adams with her film Mind My Mind mm. and someone else who's been a podcast guest. And then we also talked to her more at Encounters. And a uh, lovely film, really deserving. Also, The Physics of Sorrow by Theodore Ushev. We have an interview with him up. That's just a wonderful. It's 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 long. You got to sit down and pay attention, mm. but you don't want to look away. It's 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 and it's so well done. We went to visit the NFB. It's one of the last productions I think at their old studios, and um, the the way he did this, it's melted wax 
being moved around like paint. And so he's, you know, moving all the colors and stuff around with like this apparatus. Uh, oh yeah. Heating up the palette knife on like the, the hot plate type thing, which I very nearly sat on. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, th- I think it was sort of like aiming for it. He's like, no, <laughs> but this was an enormous passion project for him that like, you could tell it was the studio space. And he won't mind saying this. I mean, there were images of it, like up, I'm, I'm sure in the article, but it was just like the walls were just plastered with reference material and in-progress material and sketches and ideas. It was almost like that scene in the movie where the guy's gone nuts <laughs> and you realize you just realize for the first time because the whole walls have been covered. Like, oh, no. Like, this is... But in the wonderful world of animation, we can siphon that impulse into a film. And this is a very good film. Like, Theodore's work, like, it's never the same, is it? He doesn't like to repeat himself. Yeah, and but it's it's not a case that oh well that that was that, I mean your last film was great but this one's slightly mediocre. It's like bloody hell you've done it again with something completely different. Yeah, fantastic filmmaker. Sister, we just watched. Uh, it's online in full at least for the moment, which uh, was good. It was my first sort of thought was Nina Gantz, just like visually. Mm. It's interesting because when Nina Gantz did Edmund, everyone said, oh, this just looks like, oh, Willie. <laughs> and it's interesting having a film that really reminds me of Nina Gantz's style. Like, actually, she, I mean, I don't think I was ever one of those people who said they looked the same. No. But it really did hammer home how distinct the style of her film was that, you know, another film would be so evocative of it. Because mm. um, you wouldn't look at this and think, oh, Willie, at any point. No, no. But there's a the scene like the in utero scene was very very like reminiscent of Edmund to me. So yeah, nice little film. Uh, interesting, sort of you know the the political angle as well, or the cultural angle rather. You know, we were talking a bit about like films that can kind of elaborate on experiences we just have no personal reference for. Did you uh, not get the, a bit um, Adam Elliot from it as well? In terms of its use of color and. Um you know the single the single title is in i su- mm. Mm. i suppose i don't associate those tropes so much with adam elliot i think they're more just it, kind of traditional i think if it had any kind of humor in it mm. maybe but adam elliot stuff is always undercut with like a very dry dark humor and this didn't really have any humor in it, it was very po-faced yeah. Like, this is what this film is about. I, I, of course, now I'm making the connection, of course, because it's like, my sister did this and that, and, you know, so yeah. it has the, the, I, the very early films of Adam Elliot. Yeah. No. In terms of the initial presentation, I can see that a connection could be made there. That was a very polite no from both of you. <laughs> uh, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shut up, Steve. I, I, I completely get where you're coming from, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, someone else uh, who we've interviewed on the site. Memorable by Bruno Collet, or Collet. I would um, put my money on that winning. Really? Yeah, I, I really like that one. I think that's got a lot m- to it. I think there's a, quite a lot of films, especially in the Oscar shortlist, that are to do with various personal circumstance-based narratives, like yeah. either medical or mental or uh, socio-political. But I think this one... Not that the other ones aren't coming from a genuine place, but this one really, really taps into that feeling and that relationship and what it must be like in a really visceral way. And it does a really good job and it does it in a way that animation is really worth the time. Mm. 
Mm. So I think if they're being smart about it and actually picking it on genuine merit, I think this one probably deserves it more than the rest to be yeah. that person. But I'm not sure I put money on it, but I mean, you, you are painting it up as a very strong contender there, and I, I do agree that it, it certainly deserved the awards that it has won at um, obviously Annecy and places places like that. Oh, that's uh, yeah, I. Mm, I don't know how the I Academy I find it very worked. odd in conjunction to that kit ball. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> to, put, to put memorable next to kit ball. Yeah, well, you know. Which is lovely, but it's a bit of a weird... It was like, It was fine. It was just fine. But it was a bit like... It was like a film that you'd see before a feature film. Mm. But not of the quality that you'd expect from a Pixar, Pixar short film. Except for that fucking lava film. Oh, my God. That, that can go itself. But, I mean, this was better than that. I'll give it that. But it's such a weird thing to be like, this film or this film? I was like, well, clearly this film. Well, this is the the problem and the issue that we have with the Oscars every single year on this sort of Groundhog Day conversation we have on the Oscars (laughs) is is the fact that you can never predict it. I mean, Piper Piper won against, you know, Blind Weisha. uh, uh, Yeah, true. uh, 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 they tend to go for will go for something cute that has a a video a video documentary along with it that will tell you how they managed to do feathers you know yeah. uh, no offense we had the, I think we had the guys on the podcast you know and and they are really nice guys and they deserve the oscar because the the, the people decided they deserved the oscar it doesn't always work you know uh we had what was it? Uh, Richard Williams did Prologue, and it lost out to Bear Story. And that was another film that kind of came out of nowhere, like it didn't really. Well, it was up against Don Hertzfeld as mm. well, you know. Yeah, I just I can't I can't imagine just being on a jury and being like something yeah. aimed mm. at like ten year olds, something that actually taps into the human condition. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I know, but the dog helped the cat out of the thing. And like the, the, he does the... in every f***ing film with a cat and a dog. <laughs> like, it's the same film, just... I like the animation on the cat, it was funny, but cats are d- so who cares? But Pixar has done 2D, and don't do 2D. Oscar! <laughs> I think you could sort of say the same... I mean, I, I preferred this as a film, the oh, yeah. uh, Hair Love film, mm. but, like, big studio doing a you know, cosmetically stripped down short film. Maybe I've just got something about cats. Like, no film with a cat in it needs to win an Oscar. <laughs> in the same sense that I have a horrible feeling that whenever Cats does eventually arise, that will win something quite prestigious. And I'm like, no! <laughs> it's an abomination <laughs> to eyes. <laughs> Maybe it'll but, win that award. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the award for an abomination to eyes. <laughs> Hair Love Story at least does have some soul to it. Mm. Like it, uh, it does I, have. I like a, the rigs. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, they're really satisfying rigs. Like, oh, but it's, it's also really it, is, it is talking about something worthwhile. Yeah. Well, family. Yes. And then there's daughter. That's won everything by the looks of the uh, morals. <laughs> I don't know if it's won everything. If it's, if it's been just been in every, everything, it has been everywhere. Yeah. It's interesting though. It's done that thing where they like put in. Like 
Annecy, Annecy, Sundance, TIFF, Fantoche, blah, blah, blah. and then if you kind of squint at some of the others, You're it's like, like, oh yeah, eh? these ones are kind of pieces of shit festival. <laughs> but you're kind of like adding in the laurels to kind of add a bit of ni- nice composition. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I've learned with like poster design is you can let some of them go. Well, my one only has one laurel on it. It's just because I'm lazy and I haven't got got around to putting any of the ones that actually got into it. got into it encounters. Got into some big ones. I know. It got into encounters. And I'm like, meh, no. Independent animation of Utah. That's the, <laughs> that's the laurel I'm sticking with. Well, I, I, I've heard a lot of, uh, from, from different people, when, when you click on a film, when you're doing pre-selection or selection, I've heard people say, if I see a, a load of laurels, that does not sway me at all. I'm not, I'm not won over by that. No, in the it doesn't slightest. mean anything. No. You want to, like, pick big-name events as an endorsement to that. Look, hey, these guys kind of know their chips. They're not just, like... It's not, like, a group of people who got together at the community centre and was like, oh, let's put on an event I think if you've got, like, for our tax return. If you've got into any of the top ten festivals and then if there's any ones that are, like, really specific or really you're really proud of mm-hmm. getting into... Like, for me, it would always be, like... Cardiff and math and like the stop motion one in Montreal which is probably you know is the stop motion in Montreal one is not a big deal but it's a big deal to me yeah you know like I I always get more the more specific the festival the more proud I am of it weirdly mm. I do that on the Sunscapes poster at the moment like just for laughs has a pretty big position of prominence but it's not really a a big animation festival. No, I just have a lot of history yeah. of like good memories at that festival, so it feels nice to kind of be tied into it. Anyway, the film, <laughs> Daughter, <laughs> Laurels aside, uh, I enjoyed. I thought it was great. That's um, the one that has the really weird camera, like the really aggressive I, I camera like weaving. That. I don't like that. And the focus changes, this. and yeah, yeah, it makes me feel a bit nauseous. And this is sort of, I don't know, is this a sequel or just spiritually in the similar vein? We Can't Live Without Cosmos. I have not seen it. Uh, I, In fact, I think I, I googled it and it came up as We Can't Live Without Cosmos. And I was like, no, it's definitely called He Can't Live Without Cosmos. Um, it is a bit confusing because yeah, I think everyone, like when they see it, is like, oh, well, like, that's a really old film. Like, oh, no. That's exactly what I did. Was, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that was a... I can kind of get the idea of why you titled it that, but don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this does look similar. This has a slight different line style. Yeah. And a slightly different colouring. So I'm going to take on the Steve role and say, who do we want to <laughs> win the BAFTA or the Oscar? Who's our main pick? Pinky Pasta Saddled and Mindful. Do you mean memorable? Memorable, yeah. Straight in there for the BAFTA then, for Creepy Pasta Salad. Oh, yeah. I think the reason why it's sort of at the top of my list also is it's a lovely cultural snapshot on top of everything else. It really gives you this vibe of, you know, just being about in a city in Wales, you know? Yeah, right now. Mm. Yeah. It it isn't, like, nostalgic over anything. It is a very current slice of life. I'll I'll pick my top three, I think, because, I mean... Will you now? 
I don't no, recall that being one. what I put to you, but uh, <laughs> if you want to be a contrarian, I will be a contrarian. <laughs> I, I will add. I will add creepy pasta salad to that. I'll add four by three, and I will add my dad's name was Hugh. He was an alcoholic poet. I think those. See, this is why we have a conservative government now. <laughs> Too much fence sitting. Yeah, dilly dally. So, Ben, who do you want to win the BAFTA, <laughs> or who do you want to put in your top three, or whatever it is we're doing now? <laughs> Well, like I say, I, I overall I like a bunch of them, but I felt that creepy pasta salad ticked a bunch of boxes very strongly. That's why it's kind of in my mind, and I think for um, the Oscar, it's a little trickier. I think I, I haven't seen all of them. I haven't seen um, Oz Pieced. From the trailer, I would venture that I'm sure I would probably enjoy it, but whether or not it's Oscar worthy, you know. Uh, You're right there. So, memorable really hit me emotionally. My my mind is another film I've seen a bunch of times this year, and I enjoy it each time. It's it's so well received every time I see it. Like it's just a universal crowd pleaser, and it is saying things in a in a way that films haven't really succeeded at before, as far as insight into neuroatypical ways of um, being and comporting oneself. And certainly the, the sort of navigating uh, the perils of, you know, starting a new re- romantic relationship. I really this- respect the amount of research that went into that film. Yeah. And the amount of effort and work she put into the story of the film. And then we got The Physics of Sorrow, which I, I appreciate... Like, it was just a very immersive story, and the labor of it also was incredibly impressive. So it's tricky. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a hard one. Could you do your shortlist? I, I really also enjoyed Uncle Thomas, Accounting for the Days. You can't just go through all the films. <laughs> no, I've only gone through four of, te- of ten. The other six, I'm definitely not, like... Oh, okay. These are the four that are, like, in my head, the ones in contention. I think maybe just nudging them out would be my my mind just again overall it covers a lot of ground whereas memorable and the physics of sorrow are more sort of specific i think in their subject matter overall i will say that by us picking our favorites none of these are probably going to win now because anything we pick yeah. never wins it's a shit because floor is such a nice lady what well, i think Lord. should we say what we think sorry will guys win? Hmm? what should we say what we think will actually win Okay, so my money's on Kitball Kit because Pixar. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the um, one that you don't want to win will win. Oh yeah, the one which has the least reason to really. Mm. Yeah, like it's a lovely film, but still, you know, comparatively, not the strongest. I I think Hair Love is in with a shot. Yeah, yeah, it's had See a that? lot of like social media attraction. Like it, I, it's the one film from this lot that I've seen constantly on every feed. Hmm. But I would still say Kitball. I, I have to say, I think objective. It's it's a perfectly fine film. I think objectively, it isn't as engaging as a lot of the other films. Um, I think the hmm. film, when a film is winning an Oscar, I think it should be doing something for either its own industry or for hu- humanity. That, I think that, that has not the been excuse. a criteria I know that's, not the Oscars that's not a thing that the Oscars do, but that really is what it should be. You would, well, you no, would I, think I, I do think that's yeah. the... 
I think that's the reason Bear Story won back in 2015. <laughs> I think, you know, it was up against Richard Williams and Don Hertzfeld and the original, I think Constantine Bronzett was in there and Pixar and all that lot. It's always difficult, isn't it? It's, you don't know whether they're going to go for what, for, for what you say there, Laura Beth. What they should be doing is they should be doing something which pushes the boundaries in terms of uh, technically and uh, uh, no. socially. Mm. I, However, what's the chance of that? Well, there you go. Uh, we are going to have to shoot out the door pretty soon, so we should move on to the intro for our episode's guest, Robin Shaw. Robin Shaw, of course, from Lupus. Lupus Films recently have adapted Tiger Who Came to Tea. It was adapted by Joanna Harrison from the classic children's book by Judith Kerr. As with a lot of these adaptations, it takes the source text and builds on it, you know, an awful lot. So there's a great deal of uh, animation interpretation afoot, and it fills up a good half an hour, uh, well, with adverts. We saw a work-in-progress cut of it uh, a couple of months ago when we went up to see Lupus and talked to Robin, and it's really quite something. He'll, he'll go through some of the techniques that they work through. It's nice family viewing, put you in a nice hygge mood at the end of a year that I'm sure has left people a little bit rattled and addled and all of those types of things. A little bit of uh, on-screen comfort never goes amiss. It is generally a very lovely short. There is I haven't wa- I don't really always watch the animated shorts at Christmas, but this one is actually really worthwhile. There are some really beautiful shots in the film. Oh yeah, well, amazing. Um, you know, go into it, but amazing use of backgrounds or the lack thereof. Mm. You, the characters exist throughout this film oftentimes against this backdrop of just complete white and uh, that's a pretty bold you know artistic choice to make they feel more like kind of living children's book illustrations but usually you know when an adaptation comes around they kind of feel this impulse to conform to the filmic look of everything has a rendered background everything is you know fully interpretable in a kind of literal way Um, this has a lot of fun uh, so shall we hand it over to Robin Shaw to chat a bit more about making the tiger who came to tea? Yes. Ruth was sort of telling us before that um, it was a bit of an adventure kind of getting uh, Judith, the original author, on board. Were you around for that? or like? Yes. Yeah. It's quite a long process. I think it goes back three... It's about three or four years. The first meetings that I had about it. Basically, Judith was very happy to have a film made, but there was a sort of approach being mooted which she wasn't actually happy with. And actually it turned out that the simplest telling, retelling of the story from the book was what she wanted done. So that's what we've ended up with. So there have been, obviously there have been various permutations of the script um, where the script writer, uh, Joanna, uh, uh, you know, put lines that aren't in, aren't in the book I mean, obviously you need some but she had the tiger saying things that weren't that he doesn't say in the book and Judith didn't want any of that no words put in the tiger's mouth at all and um, I, I have to say I think she was bang on the on the money there because he's, he's, he's a tiger of few words and the minute you start giving him things to say uh, which he doesn't say in the book it changes his character subtly but but noticeably so 
yeah, we've ended up with a very, very simple script with very little added, uh, which which gives much more room, I think, for animation, for for, for the characters to act, uh, for nice little fantastical moments, for a song which um, I've been really looking forward to doing. Yeah, there's lots of room for the for the film to breathe and relax and have a certain tone to it. And with the animation, certainly I felt that, because um, we've reread the book as we're coming up here, and sort of wondering, like, how, do you, how do you extend this to 20 to 30 minutes? Yeah. So it was kind of fresh in my mind. What I, I did pick up on with the animation and the interactions, there was a kind of extra dimension to the little girl and the tiger in terms of, like, the sort of bonding, I guess, that they go through mm. that. And those sort of additions, the sort of non-verbal additions, were those things that, if she was still around, was Judith aware of that, or did she have any kind of impact she, on that? She was, she was very aware of it and very happy, happy with everything. Very, um, I talked to her about the tiger's character, I talked to her about Sophie's character, and Mummy's character, actually. She's very particular about Mummy's character. Um, and I, I know from her, her, well, watching her, watch the edit, that... Um, she was very happy with the way it was going. She's, she's, it's quite interesting. She's very, very precise about what she didn't like or what she didn't think was fitting um, with her story. And that, that sort of precision is quite, it's quite rare, actually. Most you know, people generally go, mm, there's something funny, there's something wrong with it. But she knew exactly what it was. And she was right every time. And I'm, I'm very pleased that we had that time with her to get it right. Yeah, I imagine it sort of removes the kind of challenge, I suppose, of you know, that balancing act. Yeah. You have that kind of direct interaction. Yeah. And they are clear and sort of precise about what's working and what's not. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it, it, it was risky, the approach that I've taken. Because if, if, you, look at, if you look at the script, yeah. you could take the script in any direction. There's, there's nothing that's stated about the relationship between Sophie and the tiger. Yes, she's fascinated by him. Yes, he makes all the eating noises. Yes, all the things that happen, happen. But there's none in the script, there's none of the unspoken stuff. So I've added that. And um, I've uh, also made sure that the, that the tiger's character has got a, a real kind of Roger Moorish coolest cat on the block, uh, enigmatic, um, very attractive air about him, mm. which, again, wasn't in the script. And the risk was that Judith Kerr wasn't going to like that. But she did. She really did like it. And she really... And, and, and that is, it, that's kind of the tiger for her as well, as far as I could see from her, for, tell from conversations with her. He is just the tiger. He doesn't need explaining. He doesn't need over-describing. He is just an enigma and he comes in and he is a bit scary. He's big, he's, 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 a, he's the tiger, he's big, he's got these beady little eyes, he's a charmer. Yeah, she was just, but, but, but all of that was put into the script, um, was sort of implied, well inferred when I read the script. 
I'm yeah, I'm third all that, and fortunately she she um she went along with it. I'm pleased to see. I think inevitably, sort of watching, this, there's a, a kind of impulse, I guess, like uh, to like immediately sort of think of like other famous animated tigers and things like that. And what struck me about this was the kind of uniqueness of the personality and a kind of it's very light on its feet. Yeah. But it's still very kind of feline, like not quite lumbering, but also very sort of, you know, takes up a lot of space. And it just seemed like there was a lot of consideration as far as keeping it like a not menacing character, like say the, the Tiger in the Jungle Book, for example, that had a lot of sort of weight and heaviness to it. Whereas this is sort of, there's a very friendly vibe to it. And I wonder, is that like, is that a tricky thing to kind of communicate to animators? Or Do you know what, you're right. There, was, there was an awful lot of consideration about their characters. Unfortunately, when you've only got three characters most of the time, yeah. that can be done. And you can uh, contrast them very, very easily. But I, was, uh, I did quite a lot of writing about the tiger and about the way he moved, how he... Very languid, puts puts as little effort into things as possible, into all his movements, but nonetheless manages to be very graceful, very elegant. His feet just fall in the right place. Um, there's nothing over-considered in anything that he does. It just kind of works. Yeah. It's just one of those charmed, you know, he's got a charmed existence. Uh, he is, when the animators started, um, it, was, it, was very, it was very quickly apparent uh, who was good at the tiger and who really got the tiger's character. And I would explain the tiger to the animators by citing a film that I'm sure, <laughs> a film or a book or something I'm sure I've seen or read where a character comes into town, you know, it's kind of a sort of Western thing, but um, a character comes into town, affects everyone's lives. He charms, he charms men, women, into believing all sorts of things. The women, you know, chain, <laughs> fall in love with him. The men become ridiculously successful for, for the time he's there. He just affects everyone's lives and just brings a little bit of magic and then disappears. And after he's gone, everyone slightly wakes up from this dream, this, this, this wonderful sort of dream that they've had and realise that they're, they're changed, but somehow they're the same. So there's, <laughs> I described him as, as that character who can just breeze into people's lives and then breeze out again, but change them completely. Yeah, yeah it was, it, yeah, there was a lot of consideration. And with Sophie, all her movements, I wanted to be contrasting, very busy, yeah. very busy um, and industrious, um, always on the move, light on her feet. But yeah, he's, he's, he's the linchpin. Also, he's... The camera work in the film, he's in charge of it all. Mm. I don't know if you noticed, but there are some shots where, so, so for instance, when, when he comes in, he walks down the hall and he kind of pushes the camera back with him. And he just sits down at the table and the camera stops when he stops. Um, there's another shot where they go uh, along the hall and up the stairs. And there's quite an unusual shot there. I just wanted the camera just kind of locked to him all the time. So if he's just walking on the spot, again, very languidly, going up the stairs very languidly, 
Um, and it's the background sort of rushing past behind him. The camera is just as mesmerised by him as she is, and, and we are, hopefully. But it's, 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 that all comes from the book, you see. See, there is an awful lot of thought goes into this. Um, it all comes from the book. I spoke to Judith about this. Um, she wasn't aware she'd done it, but there is something very clever in her use of perspective. In a lot of the shots, you've got vanishing points, which, um, in a lot of the illustrations, rather, you've got vanishing points, which, end, which, are, which sit on a horizon, which, intercept, which is, intercepts the um, tiger's eyes, which is one of the reasons why his eyes and his face are so mesmerising in the book because that's the kind of that's where the horizon is that's where everything leads to mm. mummy and sophie are kind of secondary it's it's that that we look at we're drawn to every time and that is the case in most of the illustrations with the tiger his eyes are the fo are the sort of compositional center so that use of the camera in in the film uh stems from that and I've tried, to, I've tried as much as possible as well to, to make his eyes be the horizon in most of the shots where we see him. But obviously in animation when you've got things moving, you've got that, you've got that extra dimension you can, you can bring, you can give to the uh, uh, camera work by when you've got pans and zooms and things locking it to him and locking it to, to what he does. Yeah. Yeah. We were chatting a bit upstairs with the, about the sort of backgrounds and the, the shots that kind of you know are moving within the environment and uh, if I remember right I think when um, I came here for Snow Dog was it you who was sort of in charge of that element of the yeah. film or certainly like those moving background yeah. sequences were a big part sort of injury to the original film yeah they mentioned that quite a few because we just watched the sort of unfinished version so some of the scenes don't have backgrounds, but some of the scenes, I guess, won't have backgrounds in the spirit, I guess, of the book that used the white space. It's all the white space, yeah. yeah. This, uh, it became apparent very early on, as soon as I started uh, sketching stuff, that um, the minute you start, start adding to what's in the book, it, again, like, like with the putting words in the tiger's mouth, um, it changes everything. Yeah. You know, we could have done it with sort of minimal line work and so on, but it, it still changes it. It's the balance of colour on the page, which is so striking. You've got this great blocks of orange, and then and you've got Sophie's tights and her, her purple dress. Those colours just all work so well together, and um, keeping it as, as clear and as solid as that helps, helps the film be completely identifiable straight away. Also, though, it means that that white space can become anything. Mm. It can become anything. It can be infinite, tiny. It, it, you know, uh, so when they get down from the table after tea, there's nothing in the background. We go around. It's just the, it's just the table and them circling around the table. And it's just completely empty space apart from that. And it just focuses us on them and on, on the dynamic that's building up. And then after they've moved away from the table, you can, just, you can just bring in elements of the background as necessary. And when they're going down, when they're answering the door, because one of the big challenges in the script, if you re again, if you, if you read the script, 
uh, when mummy says, I wonder who that can be, it can't be the milkman, you know, because he came this morning. The words are there, the, 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 the lines are there in the script, but what isn't there is any of this, which is one of my favourite pages of the spreads in the book. So the challenge was, how do I show these things when they're in the kitchen and they're going to answer the door? And I thought, well, if you've got all this white space, the white space can just become anything. You just, they just walk away from the table and all these things are there on their journey down to the front door. Yeah. And suddenly the journey to the front door to, seems to take ages, but it, it just works. And it's lovely. You, should, you, you wait till it's in colour. It's going to really, really look lovely. Because there's, there's another thing as well. I come from a... I, well, both I and um, the sort of longest-serving members of, of the, the crew that I work with regularly, we come from a commercials background. Worked, you know, hand-drawn stuff, watercolor stuff on paper. A studio called Sherbert, working for Jonathan Hodgson. So we come from that kind of background where there's a lot of transformation goes on in the in the frame, drawn transformation white space is used, things can pop on and off whenever they're needed or not. So um, that kind of sort of independent filmmaking and commercials background has really informed the approach to this, made it less straightforward. There in the kitchen, this is what the kitchen looks like. There in the bathroom, this is what the bathroom looks like. Less, less straightforward approach like that which I hope is, is going to be refreshing and sort of put it in the right context. Yeah. Make it feel slightly of its time. From the, from the beginning, I wanted it to feel like the film could have been made any time between now and when the book came out. So recognising that the book is, is from the 60s and not trying to hide it and sort of contemplate it, but um, also not sort of whacking that fact over people's heads. So I think the approach that we've taken sort of does kind of hark back to animation of that era and from the 70s, you know, Pink Panther show, uh, Bod. Bod's a big, big, big influence. You know Bod? Yeah. It's the way characters can just appear. There's nothing there. Just pop, 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 pop. And uh, with the song sequence, especially, there was, uh, it's the Magic E song. So people of a certain generation will know what will, will, will know the Magic E song, and it's from a school's program called I think it's called um, Look and Read or Words and Pictures. I can't remember. I think it's um, Look and Read. And Derek Griffiths used to write these songs. It was educational about reading and writing. And there was one, uh, and they would they have animation with them. And uh, there was one song called the Magic E song, and I've never, never forgotten it. And uh, I looked it up on YouTube and I thought, I want the song in this film to have the same feeling as that. Make, to make, just to make people happy. Sorry, I'm waffling on. For that song then, was it, um, presumably it's an original song. Yes, it is. Um, do you have an idea of the visuals and you kind of present that to the songwriter or do you start with the song and go from there? Or? Well, it's a, it's a tricky process. And it's taken the longest, well, understandably taken the longest out of the film, the longest sequence to, to, to get pinned down. In the script, the song happens there when the tiger's at the cupboard. And I thought, okay, instead of just it happening at the cupboard, 
let's go into the cupboard, let's use the cupboard to be um, a gateway to a, a fantasy world and use everything in the cupboard. So I wanted to use food, packaging and, and design uh, to have this sort of uh, pink elephants on parade number going on in the sort of imaginary cupboard environment. So we, we boarded something to start with that had a lot of what's ended up in there uh, already there, but there was also a lot, of, a lot of other stuff that's being discarded because, quite rightly, Judith thought some of it wasn't quite enough about the tiger. And she's, she, she's yeah, again, bang on there. So, okay, rewind, make it more about the tiger um, and just the tiger's eating. And also, by that time, we'd sort of pinned down a theme for the song, which is seizing the day and opening the door to new joyous possibilities, whatever they might be. And then, yes, we reboarded the song. But also, by that time, we thought, oh, hold on a minute. We've got loads of animation of the tiger elsewhere in the film. We can actually reuse and adapt bits of it, redope it, um, and then also mix it in with, with other elements from the book, design elements from the book, and still keep it within the cupboard, in, in the cupboard, and make it much more of a big tiger and Sophie number. And use patterns. I really wanted to use patterns, because there's so many patterns in the book. And Judith Kai used to be a, a pattern designer, textiles designer, I think. So, uh, yeah, really used patterns. You've seen the sequence. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. The, uh, the tiger itself, um, sort of creating that visual, and just kind of having a look at the, sort of, I guess, uh, pipeline upstairs, it's a really effective end result. As was pointed out, that within the book itself, it's not sort of a strict design approach from picture to picture, as I think animation requires. Uh, so I'm kind of interested in like, was there a lot of experimentation or development to kind of get to a, a like a template or a, a sort of sequence of how you get the final visual, of, you know, and the rules, I guess, of like the strikes to keep track of yes. and everything. Yes, every aspect of him, because he, uh, well, like you say, he looks different in every picture. Absolutely every picture, and his, actually his character slightly changes. If you look at him on the front of the book there, he is a much more cuddly tiger than he is there, for instance, um, where he's looking slightly sinister, I think. Um, so yes, there was a, and there's, there's also the fact that at times he's on all fours looking like a proper tiger, but then at other times he needs to sit like a, you know, in a much more sort of ape-like way, actually, on, on, a, on a chair, which he just he can't really do. Um, and poor Peter, the animation director, spent a good couple of months working out the turnarounds of the tiger, facially uh, and uh, full bodily. It was a bit of a nightmare because, yeah, when he roars in the film, for instance, it's quite useful to have him looking like a real tiger, more like a real tiger, so you can slightly tweak the model that, for that pose to be like that. But then, full face, you want him, he's got to be the tiger in the book. Um, but, uh, yeah, we got there in the end. Another little thing about, uh, I guess, the casting. 
if you had any kind of involvement or sort of yes. on that, how that kind of informed the animation? Or? There were certain voices that I wanted from the very beginning. Tamsin Gregg as Mummy was just really obvious for me. She's got that nice RP thing going, and she's but she's got her voice has got a little bit of a bite to it, bit of a sardonic bite, and she she see it, it struck me that for Mummy you could just go down the fr the frightfully sweet route and just give her absolutely no character whatsoever, or you could get someone who can do comedy, a really good voice actor who can do comedy, and give her lines a bit of an edge. And uh, so when when she says, "Oh, I do hope you haven't caught a cold," you know, he's just blowing his nose on the tea towel, just throwing the tea towel on the ground. She could just play that. You could just play that straight and and have Mummy sincerely wishing him wishing that, that he hasn't caught a cold, or you could pick up, have her picking picking up the tea towel and going, mm, "Hope you haven't caught a cold." You know, slightly sarcastically. She's um, she's a little bit. I've just always described um, the way Mummy talks to the tiger around the tea table um, as the way my ex-mother-in-law used to t used to talk to me when I was eating far too much around the dinner, <laughs> at dinner, which I often did because they didn't eat very much. <laughs> dainty proportions, proportions like that. So yeah, uh, her, her she she was she she was perfect for Mummy, and I'm really really pleased that um, that we got her. Uh, Paul Whitehouse, as the milkman again, was some someone I I wanted to, I wanted to get his voice in something I'm doing for ages, but uh, he's just perfect for the milkman because again, if you took the lines of the of the, of the milkman's lines in the script, there's, there's nothing to them. He, you know, he could just be completely genuine in for instance in, in saying oh that sounds like fun you know you could play it so sincerely but i've described him i think as a londoner i, I recognize these characters they're people that you do business with like taxi drivers milkmen postmen everything really um, market traders you know just just people you meet you do a little bit of business with them, they're super jolly with you, really warm and friendly, but actually they couldn't give a monkey's about you. And so the minute he's got his money, yeah, right, so I'm off. Because actually the, 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 the clue for that is, is, is when he says, oh, well, I better be off. It's like, oh, is that, is that how, how skin deep your, your, your sort of care for them is? Um, so so that, I, I thought he'd be able to take some fairly neutral neutrally written lines and again give them a real edge a real comic edge uh, which he does and then he puts so much else into it Benedict Cumberbatch is just well, aside from his connection with with the book already you know because he has a, he, he read the audio book uh, for the I think it was for the 20th anniversary not 20th 40th anniversary so he's got a connection with the book already um, but he's just perfect perfect daddy voice and I'm, I'm, the amount he brought to the part was, was just incredible. Seeing it, I was gobsmacked. We only had him for an hour, and he just threw everything at it and enabled you to build on Daddy's character. So you already have an idea of his character. You tell that to the actor, brief the actor during the recording, say, oh, 
take like this, play it like that, and then they bring something else to it, and then you take that away and give that to the animators and say, look what he did. Let's reflect that in the animation. Let's, let's build, on, build on that. You just end up with this much more solid character. Genius. And David Yellow was, was, was absolutely amazing as a tiger. I didn't know anyone could, could do so many different types of growls and eating noises. So characterful. What I'm really hoping, just overall, is that it will be a bit different from what people might be expecting from a, an animated Christmas special. A bit different in, in, its, in its aesthetics and its sensibilities, um, a bit different in the way, it, in its kind of... I think it's quite a self-assured film so far, and I really, I think that's very important. It needs to make people make people feel relaxed and comfortable and jolly. There's no great story arc. There's no redemption. There's no, do you know what I mean? There's no emotional development. It's just a bit of a funny story with, that, that makes people happy. Thank you very much to Robin Shaw there and all of the team at Lupus Films for being such gracious hosts. It was fantastic to get a look behind the scenes. The Tiger Who Came to Tea will be on Channel 4, Tuesday, 24th of December. That's Christmas Eve, 7.30pm. To see more of the work of Lupus Films, visit lupusfilms.com. And Robin Shaw's website is robinpshaw.com. And so we're at the end of another squiggly Christmas podcast. I guess this was kind of part two of our Christmassy podcast because we did klaus last episode we like to spread the seasonal cheer throughout the year I, yeah i don't think we've actually mentioned christmas very much this episode <laughs> <laughs> no. mainly the oscars and uh, tigers the end of the year and uh, unconvincing lions the whole feline kingdom <laughs> cats be dicks and cats being dicks in uh pixar films so there you go it's been a very cat heavy episode one for the cat enthusiasts i'm not sure why i'm continuing to mine this cat thing <laughs> I'll Merry Kitmas. Very good. There you go. Bring it round with a pun. <laughs> There's one for the cutting room floor. <laughs> we'll be taking a brief podcast hiatus, but we'll be back in the new year. Until then, of course, you can visit the website squiggly.com. You can follow us at Squiggly on Twitter, at Squiggly Animation on Instagram, and Squiggly Magazine on Facebook for all your animation needs. Everyone have a wonderful holiday season. Merry holidays to you, Stephen. Merry holidays to you, Ben. Merry holidays to you, Laura Beth. And to you. I think that's everyone. Bye! <laughs> <laughs>